We've discussed this previously, but it's worth re-mentioning. We celebrate July 4th because that was the date printed on the broadside, printed by printer, patriot, and cavalryman Joseph Dunlap and sent all over the colonies. So it was accurate for him to print that date. That's when he laid the type. It was the moment of printing. Yet the vote in Congress occurred two days before, July 2nd, 1776. John Adams had a remark that he felt July 2nd would be the date that many would celebrate from coast to coast one day with illuminations, you know, fireworks, and picnics. Well, he was sure right about that part, but the date was wrong. We go with Dunlap's broadside. And as evidence of how common that perception was, years later, Jefferson would refer to the flames kindled on July 4th, 1776. So, while you may go ahead and light an illumination in Mr. Adams' honor, or eat a burger in your backyard in remembrance of the day that the Independence Resolution passed Congress, July 2nd, I think that July 4th has just an equal claim to the historic date as July 2nd does. One is the date when the legislative body voted in a room closed to the world. The other is the date when the final version was put in a form that third parties could view. It was 12 colonies, now states, to zero in the vote on July 2nd. There are 13 colonies. So what happened? One state still had not committed by the time of July 4th, and that was New York. It did not vote for independence. The New York delegation to the Continental Congress is not all that remembered, and this may be the reason because they did not vote. New York delegates sent an urgent message, though, to the New York Provincial Congress asking for instructions with regard to American independence. They said, The important question of independency was agitated yesterday in a committee of the whole Congress, and this day will finally be determined in the House. We know the line from our conduct on this occasion. We have your instructions, and will faithfully pursue them. New doubts and difficulties, however, will arise should independency be declared. Yet, these New Yorkers signed the document, the document declaring independence, because on July 11th, New York, the final state, made it unanimous when the New York Convention instructed the delegates they could vote for independence. Well, it was too late for the vote. The vote had taken place nine days before, but it was a good symbolic stand to know that New York was joining with the other 12 colonies. Thus, those New York delegates, despite the sizable Loyalist population in their state, be it Anglican clergy in Manhattan, Dutch farmers in the north of the island, or French and Indian war veterans upstate who had land grants from the British and had no interest in rising up, they signed the document committing their state to the cause. And the punishment began. Sometime after the signing, the Bronx was burning. Though that area wasn't called that at the time, this northern section of the city of New York didn't bear the name of that old Dutch settler, Jonas Bronx. Instead, it was called Morrisania. This is because much of it was owned by the Morris family. Representing Congress from New York would be Lewis Morris of that family. Of all the signers, Lewis Morris could be sure that there would be speedy retaliation for his signing of the document, as the British gunboats would be, at the time of his signing a short distance from his house, which was near the water. But according to his brother's account, Lewis Morris didn't hesitate. When asked to sign, Lewis said, Damn the consequences, give me the pen. 
There are a few surprises after that. The British invaded. His house, however, was not leveled by the gunboats, like many of the signers' homes, while they were destroying and setting fire to other areas. His home was too nice to be completely leveled by the British. It was, according to his son, made a barracks and severely damaged, fences knocked down, cattle seized by the British army, and the family sent into exile. In fact, for the next six years, Lewis Morris and his family would be well from their family home until the evacuation of New York City. It was Queens that got really raised. When Francis Lewis, a delegate from New York, came out for independence, some were surprised. He was a conservative, 63 at the time of signing, and although he had been active in protesting Britain at different times, many thought he favored reconciliation, even that he might be a loyalist. He had, for the service in the French and Indian War that he provided, been given land in Whitestone, now Queens, New York. His home, located in Whitestone, after signing, was destroyed in the American Revolutionary War by British soldiers. But Lewis Morris had another country house, so he moved to that on Long Island. This proved to be an unfortunate step. In the autumn of the following year, this house was plundered by a party of British light horse cavalry. Its extensive library, valuable papers of every description were destroyed. But they weren't looking just to ruin Francis Lewis's property. They wanted the man. The man who had put his signature on the document proclaiming the independence of America wasn't there at the time, but his wife was. It's a story of sacrifice rarely told. According to the accounts, Elizabeth remained calm as the British soldiers advanced and a British warship opened fire on the house. The soldier tore the glittering buckles from her shoes that looked to him like gold, but really just pinchbeck. Apparently, she said, all that glitters is not gold, sarcastically. The soldiers destroyed books from the library, the papers, the pictures, broke up furniture. Again, this is just not niceties. You have to remember, this is a time where you didn't just go out to Target and replace the stuff that was destroyed. You destroy furniture in the American colonies. You destroy books, and you were destroying wealth that even men of fortune cannot easily replace without turning that fortune into serious debt. But the property destruction was not the worst part. After pillaging the house, they took Elizabeth Lewis captive and threw her into prison without a bed or a change of clothing and with scant food. Eventually, this capture was brought to the attention of General Washington, and he ordered the arrest of Mrs. Barron, the wife of the British Paymaster General, and made it known that his captives would receive the same treatment as Mrs. Lewis unless an exchange was made. You take one of our wives, we'll go to Philadelphia, which at the time we control, take one of yours. The exchange was arranged, and Elizabeth Lewis was returned, but her health was seriously impaired due to the captivity and imprisonment. Imprisonment was not fun. Not that imprisonment today is fun, but it was ten times worse. After her captivity, she rejoined Francis Lewis in Philadelphia, but in serious broken health, and died in June 1779. Francis Lewis at her side. Elizabeth Lewis is not remembered as many of the Patriot Americans who sacrificed in the Revolution, but should be. Some of the great names from New York that would deserve mention in any recollection of the founding of the country, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, George Clinton, were not present at this event. Hamilton had just moved to the country and would be attending Columbia and would be starting a little militia operation on the side, but was not part of the Continental Congress. 
Clinton would be in the Continental Congress, but was busy in New York during the time of the signing. Representing the city of New York, it was not surprising, would be a member of the Livingston family. Philip Livingston was from a family that had a long history and would have a long future in the politics of the new nation of the United States. He was not able to attend the Continental Congress as a delegate from New York when the Congress voted for independence in July. A former alderman, the equivalent of a city councilman in New York in the 1750s, he disapproved of total independence from England. He was a merchant and thought it would impact business too much. But when Congress decided Livingston did his duty, he made it to Philadelphia in time to sign the document. Among Philip Livingston's early accomplishments were advocacy for the founding of King's, now Columbia College, establishment of a professorship of divinity at Yale, the building of the first meeting house for the Methodist Society in America, and helping to organize the New York Public Library in 1754. Beginning in 1759, he served three terms as elective representative to the Provincial Assembly in New York City. Founded the Chamber of Commerce in 1770. 1771, he was one of the first governors of New York Hospital. He was a member of the Committee of 51, who chose the New York delegates to the First Continental Congress, and he was one of five selected. Philip's brother, William Livingston, was a prominent lawyer in New Jersey. He was a delegate to the Continental Congress from 74 to June of 76, then was called to command the militia of New Jersey, so could not vote and could not sign. That's why Philip is the one signing, because the family connections go on. Philip's first cousin, once removed, Robert R. Livingston, was also a member of the Continental Congress and served a committee of five who were appointed to draw up and prepare the Declaration of Independence. At the time when the signing was taking place, he was also a member of several important New York State committees. Another relative, Edward, would help negotiate the Louisiana Purchase during the Jefferson administration. It was said of Philip Livingston, the member of the Livingston family who signed the declaration, there was a dignity with a mixture of austerity in his deportment, which perhaps rendered it difficult for strangers to talk to him. He was silent and reserved and seldom indulged in much freedom in conversation, according to a biography of him. Despite health problems, he continued to serve as New York senator after the signing and his term as a member of the Continental Congress one more year after he would pass away of tuberculosis. Congress attended his funeral as a body. New York City didn't fare well during the Revolution. The city became the political and military center of operations in all of North America for the British Army and the British government. It was a haven for loyalist refugees. If you didn't want to be part of the Patriot cause, go to New York City. The Continental Army was never able to break the British control at any time during the Revolutionary War. Continental Army officer Nathan Hale was hanged in Manhattan for espionage. In addition, the British began to hold the majority of captured American prisoners of war aboard prison ships in the East River in Brooklyn. More Americans lost their lives from neglect aboard these ships than died in all the battles of the war. British occupation lasted until 1783. Sir Guy Carleton received orders from London for the evacuation of New York City. He told the President of the Continental Congress that he was proceeding with the withdrawal of refugees, liberated slaves, military personnel as fast as possible. More than 29,000 loyalists were evacuated from the city on that day. And then, triumphantly, November 25, 1783, George Washington led the Continental Army in a triumphal march down Broadway to the Battery. 
Indeed, the last shot of the American Revolutionary War was reported to be fired on this day as a British gunner from one of the departing British warships fired a cannon to get back at jeering crowds that were laughing at them in Staten Island. The shot fell well short of the shore. Declaration signer and ex-president John Adams wrote to his friend and also declaration signer and ex-president Thomas Jefferson in 1813, a list of the signers still alive. Robert Treat Payne lives, Adams said, alert, droll, and witty, though deaf. Floyd, I believe, remains. Indeed, a few months earlier, Jefferson, not knowing, had queried, does Floyd still remain? I had not heard of him though I had not heard of his death either. Indeed, he was living. William Floyd was 41 at the time of signing, his signature on the document scraggly with an odd squiggle after the end of his D. The British, after the signing of Declaration, overran the island of Long Island, including Floyd's home at Mastic. Mrs. Floyd barely had time to bury the family silver before her and the children, with a few friends and neighbors, fled. Thankfully, In October 1776, William Floyd told Congress he was going to leave, and Governor Jonathan Trumbull of Connecticut ordered an armed party to help him to cross the Sound and bring back Floyd's possession, the buried silver. Floyd continued to faithfully serve both his military obligations, a major general in the militia, and his duty as a delegate to the Continental Congress. He was a member of the Clothing Committee and served additionally on several other committees from time to time. He served a short term in the New York State Senate, but in January 1779 was sent back to the Continental Congress. His wife, by the time Floyd returned to his Long Island estate in the end of the war in 1783, he found ransacked buildings, desolate fields, uprooted trees, burnt fences, lost stock, and an unlivable house. In 1821, ex-president John Adams again wrote to ex-president Thomas Jefferson, Floyd is gone. You and Jay and Carol and I are all that remain. He's wrong about John Jay, that John Jay didn't sign the declaration, but I guess he considered him important part of the effort. We, John Adams said, shall be asterized very soon. Jefferson answered that letter. You and I must join our deceased brother Floyd. Yet I will not believe our labors lost. Light and liberty are on the advance. Should the cloud of barbarism again spread through Europe, this country remains to preserve and restore light and liberty to them. The flames kindled on July 4th, 1776, have spread over too much of the globe to be extinguished by the feeble engines of despotism. I want to thank you for listening to They Signed, the signers of the Declaration of Independence. I enjoyed doing this. I hope you enjoy listening to it. If you do like this podcast, please uh, give us a positive uh, review on iTunes. That's very helpful, and it helps others to find it. If you do like this program, you might like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, which is my other podcast that I do. It's on iTunes, or it's available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. In the next episode, we will ask an important question. Why did all those men wear wigs?